Okay, <coughs> nice little house again. I see some of you back that have been away for a little while and a special welcome to our visitors if you're here for the first time. Pray that uh, you are blessed by uh, your time with us today. And as we look at our final sermon uh, at the life of Joseph, turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, this is our 17th sermon on this uh, topic. And today we conclude the life of Joseph, which is interesting enough, we actually just concluded the life of Joshua on Wednesday evening. So these two are sort of coinciding together. And there's a bit of a link at the end of, uh, of this sermon with uh, Joshua, so we'll find that out. But I pray you've been blessed by, the, uh, by this series. And we'll be reading from verses 1 to 6 this morning to commence Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. And Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And the physicians embalmed Israel. And the forty days were fulfilled for him, for so are fulfilled the days of those which are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him three score and ten days. And when the days of his mourning were passed, Joseph spake unto the house of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the, eye, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Lo, I die. In my grave, which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan, there shalt thou bury me. Now therefore let me go up, I pray thee, and bury my father, and I will come again. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury thy father, according as he made thee swear. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious word and for the opportunity we have to learn from it and feed from it. We pray that your spirit be working now within our hearts to understand it, Lord, and to apply it to our lives. We thank you that you've preserved us so perfectly. We thank you for the men who you have called and who you are led to write these words. And we pray today that our lives would continue to shine forth as lights in this world through this word, we pray. Amen. Okay, so we have, as I've said, 16 sermons, and we're now up to the 17th sermon on this particular topic, which has been an absolute blessing to me as we as we reflect on the lives of these godly men and women in the Bible, they should spur us on. They should um, uh, encourage us to live more fully for God, and this is what's happened with Joseph with me personally, okay, during this time. I have an extra blessing. I get a chance during the week to actually meditate on these things and as I'm putting it together, God's working on me. So um, I, it's been an absolute blessing for me uh, during these last uh, 17 weeks. So through this series, though, we've seen um, what a faithful life looks like. In the entire life of Joseph, we have seen nothing but faithfulness from him towards the Lord. We have seen his faithfulness when he is betrayed by brethren. We've seen his faithfulness when he is living in slavery, as he's serving in a foreign land, away from everyone that he loves and knows, when he's being promoted to positions of trust and authority and power. We've seen him even when he is wrongly accused and sentenced, sentenced when he's in prison and when he is ruling. We have seen the same consistency in his walk, in his faith with God. I pray that's the same for us. 
Because we know that life is filled with ups and downs and it's filled with disappointments and encouragements and times that are smooth and times that are very rough. Sometimes the, um, the devil comes in our ear and says, you know, look at, look at the, your life, how hard it is. Why should you trust God? Why should you put your faith in him? Why should you continue to follow in his steps when he is not looking after you? But in Joseph's life, we don't see those excuses coming up. Even when his own family betrays him and he could have said, God, why did you let this happen to me? We see him consistently walk and follow the Lord. Never we see him. When he's quite unique in that fashion, really, because apart from Daniel, who was, Daniel was called like perfect, um, we don't see this type of, of perfection, this type of walk. So we've seen he has this amazing and consistent faith in God. It doesn't go up and down like a yo-yo. It's just constant. But on top of that, we've seen this amazing humility before God. That even though there were times in his life and now towards the end of his life, he has Im immense power. This guy's got immense authority. He can do whatever he likes. He doesn't take advantage of it. At times when he's in prison, he's been to the very lowest point and he's been now to the very highest point. He shows an amazing humility and humbleness before God. And faith and humility are two necessary traits that you need to have if you want to follow God. Without those two things, you cannot please God. Because if you don't have, if you aren't humble before him, if you have a greater sense of yourself than, than, than what you actually are, the Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But we've also seen that without faith it's impossible to please him. So faith and humility. If you take just two things from the life of Joseph, please take those two and apply those to your own life and reflect on those two things. How humble am I as a person and how faithful am I as a person? What is my faith? You see, your faithfulness, the things you do in your life, how faithful you are, how consistent you are in your life, is going to be a reflection of what faith you actually have. If you have little faith, you will not be faithful. But if you have faith, you will be faithful. So faith, your faithfulness in all the things that God has called us to, is a reflection of your faith, the maturity and the strength of your faith. So Joseph is this wonderful picture of those two qualities. And in, and in saying that, he has become for us this beautiful picture of the life of Christ, of what Jesus would be like when he came into this world. There are so many parallels that we have looked at in Joseph's life, in his betrayal and all those different things, uh, and how he, how he was thought to be dead, and Jesus actually died. But then he's come back to life and he's ruling and we see this picture in Joseph's life of Christ. There are so many similar circumstances that, that followed um, uh, Joseph's life that would be evident in the life of the Messiah when he came into this world. And the sermon's no different. And so we find at the end of this, uh, the book of Genesis... Jacob has just died on his bed. He's finished giving his blessings to his children. And with his son still around him, we read this in verse 1. Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. You know, from the very beginning of the story of Joseph's life, we see this amazing relationship of love that he has with his father. 
He loved his father immensely and his father loved him. And so this, this, this focus now, and you might say, well, hang on a sec, but why isn't there any mention of the other brothers falling on him and crying? Well, maybe they did cry, but the emphasis is on Joseph here, on the love and the special love that he had for his father. And so you can assume that they cried as well. But once again, the emphasis is on this relationship between him and his father because he is a picture of the son and the father and the love they have for each other. His love for his father was constant throughout his entire life. Even when they were separated for all those years, he never stopped loving his father and his father never stopped mourning for him. And this illustrates the perfect and loving relationship that Jesus Christ has for the Father and how loving the Father is towards his own son, how that was continuous throughout his whole life, how that relationship sustained him. Even when the whole world turned against Christ, the Bible says that that relationship never wavered. It never finished. He did exactly what his father called him to do. And his father, the Bible says, loved the son. And because of the Son, we are loved of God too. And so we've been offered a relationship even though we were outside of that because of what he did. Because of his perfect obedience as a son, because of his perfect sacrifice, we now can sit here this morning and we can celebrate because we've been offered that relationship as well. We've been, we've been offered this adoption as children into God's family when we were his enemies. All because of the sacrifice of the Son. And it also pictures this amazing love that the Son has for us. In that he would go to this length to rescue sinners such as us. We did not deserve it. We still don't deserve it. There is still nothing good within us other than what he's put there. And yet we see this continual act of love towards us, this, this relationship of love. And the Bible tells us what love is like. It's patient. It's kind. It, it bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. And I'll tell you what, when it comes to my life, God's done a lot of enduring. But that's the picture of love. And Joseph pictures that love and our Saviour epitomises that love because he is love. There's a, when you look at the, this, um, this love that's poured out when Joseph sees his father uh, who has just died in front of him on a bed and he, and, he, and he weeps on his face. We see this love of our Saviour when his friend Lazarus passes away and he weeps. You might think, what does he have to weep for? He knew he was going to, but yet he weeps. And the Bible tells us in John eleven thirty five, it just simply says, the smallest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And then what became evident from that, in verse 36, it says, Then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. The thing they immediately got from, the, from his weeping for his friend that has just passed away, even though he was going to raise him up from the dead, the thing evident was how much he loved his friend. And that's how much he loves us. The love of our Saviour is constant and pure. There is nothing that can separate us from his love, regardless of what happens in our life. You see, 
We may, we may come up with every excuse not to love him perfectly when things don't go right. Our flesh may tell us that he, that he, that he isn't worthy of our perfect love, but that's not true. Because Romans 8.39 says, Nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate us. In fact, when you look at that thing, you, you see all these distresses that come upon the people. Whether it's death or life or devils or angels or whatever else it may be. Distress and famine and nakedness and sword and all those, all those things that people can go through in their life. And, and we see people going through those sorts of those terrible things in their life. We've been immune from many of those for most of our lives. But the Apostle Paul says, regardless of what we go through in our lives, there is nothing that has separated us or can separate us from his love. Which means that we should never interpret. We should never ever interpret. If we are the children of God, we should never interpret our circumstances to mean that he does not love us anymore. And if we do that, that is wrong thinking. That's the devil. The devil who wants you to think like that. It's our flesh that wants you to think like that. So don't ever imagine that whatever you're going through, God has failed to love you or our Saviour has failed to love us. Let's go to verse 2. Genesis 50 verse 2 then says, And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And the physicians embalmed Israel. Genesis 50 verse 3. And 40 days were fulfilled for him. For so I fulfill the days of those which are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him three score and ten days, so 70 days, the whole of Egypt mourned. So you might think, hang on a sec, but what do they embalm him for? Embalming is a special procedure that wasn't done by the Israelites. They wouldn't normally embalm their people. Embalming was a way of preserving the body so it didn't decay. You'd preserve it. It's like wrapping it in preservatives, okay? Removing all those parts that... that Decay and go smelly and go and go off, and in, in, in protecting the body in a way that it doesn't go putrid. Okay, and the Egyptians did that because they believed that they needed to be preserved to a certain extent in order to go into the afterlife. That's why we have mummies in Egypt that are still wrapped up, and they're wrapped up because they thought that they would come back alive. And that's why in those tombs of the pharaohs you have food. And you have uh, a table to sit down on and you have, they thought they were actually going to live in that, in that place. And they were going to somehow keep on, keep on going because they were preserved. Now, did Joseph believe that, that, you know, Jacob needed to be embalmed or preserved like a mummy in order to enter into eternal life? No. No way. Because Abraham wasn't, wasn't embalmed, neither was Isaac. You know, there were any, any of the, the previous uh, godly people. So why did Joseph allow his father, and mind you, it took 40 days to embalm. How long does it take to pickle some... Um, um, at least 40. About 40 days to pickle, uh, at least 40 days to pickle um, uh, olives and things like that, right? Same sort of thing. It's being pickled, essentially. Right? So why did Joseph do this? He didn't think that it was necessary to be embalmed to go into heaven. Well, maybe two reasons, I suspect, right? The first thing is that his father made him promise that when he died, he wasn't going to be buried in Egypt. Well, it's not a day's journey 
to, the, to Canaan to be buried where he wanted to be buried. And he knew that they, that they would have to mourn him for a number of days. Okay, They mourned him for 70 days in Egypt before they actually took him away. So you know what a body might, might look like when you keep it out and you, uh, and you don't do something to it? I mean, there was no refrigeration over there. They couldn't put him in a, in a morgue somewhere and keep him cool for that time. So I suspect that part of that, that thing was, since he had to be transported back to Canaan, uh, you might want to pickle him a little bit just to make sure that he doesn't decay so much that he becomes very smelly. The other reason is that in Egyptian culture, the, the most important people were given state funerals, let's say. Okay? It happens still today. So people who are famous in Melbourne and, you know, and, and Victoria have been given state funerals. And in Australia, if you, if you consider like a national icon or a national treasure, whatever else it is, you're given a state funeral. The, the state pays for it and everyone uh, joins along with it. Well, consider this for a moment. Joseph was the ruler of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And so as the father of the ruler of Egypt, you fell into that category. You are a national treasure and you are worthy of a state funeral. So if you don't do that, if you don't give them a state funeral, which you notice here, the whole of Egypt is mourning for him, um, then you are considered not being respectful. So Joseph fulfills that respect because he knows it doesn't matter what happens to the body after anyway. His father is still going to be with, with, uh, with the Lord and with his, uh, with his family. And so... Joseph's father, Jacob, qualified as this special person to receive this. And that's part of the reason, I suspect, that he was allowed to be um, uh, embalmed. And so it says that they also mourned for that, for that time, for 70 days. What do you do with 70 days of mourning? Well, in some cases, they, they paid professional mourners to cry. Did you know there was a, there's actually a, uh, there's a job like that? Yeah. Anyone done professional mourning before? <laughs> Damien, you've done professional mourning. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yes>. Always. <laughs> well, they, they, they would have had professional mourners. And I, and I think these days, you know, people would wear, if you're a football player and someone dies, they wear black armbands and, and people wear different things for a particular uh, period of time. And so the Egyptians mourned in a particular way. Maybe they didn't wear bright colours for, you know, for a period of time. Maybe they didn't put on as much makeup. Maybe they, you know, it, it, when you're mourning, uh, the, um, the Jews would cover themselves in sackcloth. They'd change their clothes. They'd rip their clothes. They would cover themselves in ashes to show that they were mourning about something. The Egyptians might have had something that's similar to that. So for 70 days, Egypt was mourning the death of Jacob. Someone who wasn't even Egyptian, someone who had only come uh, recently, but because of the his son, they mourned for him. And verse four then says, "And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spake unto the house of Pharaoh. So he went to his Pharaoh's household, saying, If now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear." saying, Lo, I die in my grave, which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan. There shalt thou bury me, 
Now, therefore, let me, let me go up, I pray thee, and bury my father, and I will come again. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury thy father, according as he made thee swear. So Joseph goes to Pharaoh's family to ask them to petition to Pharaoh and ask him and say, Listen, if I found a Pharaoh in your eyes, which means his whole family, can you please go to him and ask him this favour for me? My father made me promise to bury him in Canaan. Can I go and do that? And they did. And Pharaoh complied. Pharaoh actually gave permission. So you might look at that and say, oh, that's an easy thing. Sure, go and bury your dad. But what was he actually agreeing to? He didn't actually agree just to, for him to go and bury his dad. Because he was a national icon, let's say, this wasn't just a simple procedure saying, all right, Joseph, you and your brothers go home. When we look now at what he actually gave permission for, we're going to see that it was a, a much bigger decision than what we might expect. Because verse 7 then says, And Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the house of Joseph and his brethren and his father's house, only their little ones and their flocks and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. This is not a small funeral. This is not something you know, on, the, on, the, on the graveside with just the immediate family around. No, he sent all of the elders of his own house, Pharaoh's own house, and the elders or the rulers of Egypt, along with all of Joseph's family, except for their children, back to Canaan. And with them, they've actually sent a huge army of chariots and horsemen. Why? Why would you send all these chariots and horsemen? Because we know when you send all the important people from your country, all the rulers and all the elders from your own family, from Pharaoh's own household, and they've all gone up and you've said, all right, the whole lot of you go, because this is an important thing. You're going to make sure that they're protected all the way to Canaan. Because along the way, there may be some nasty people. And so he sent, as you would expect, and that's what makes the story you know, if people sometimes they, they look at the, the thing and they say, oh, that, that can't be true in the Bible. You know what I mean? You know, when the, when, the, when, he's, when he parted the Red Sea, that can't be true. And they look for every reason not to believe the Bible. The Bible is filled with reasons to believe. And when you look at this, this is one of those things that you say, oh, actually, it makes perfect sense. That if he was going to allow this procession to, to go from Egypt all the way to Canaan, that he would send an army with them to protect them. And that's exactly what happened. And so now you see this great company of horsemen and chariots and elders and all these important people from Egypt all travelling all the way to Canaan. And let's see what happens when they arrive. In verse 10 it says, And they came to the threshing floor of Atad which is beyond Jordan, which is the other side of Jordan. And there they mourned with a great and very sore lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in the floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians. Wherefore, the name of it was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond Jordan. 
Now, growing up in an Italian culture, I've seen plenty of mourning. If you've ever experienced a Calabrian um, funeral before, who's experienced a Calabrian or Sicilian funeral? Wonderful experience, isn't it? Especially as you're growing up and you, you, hear, people, you hear people wailing and, and doing all that sort of stuff. Um, it's quite a, a, it can be actually a traumatic event. Um, when a family member is lost, the, the time of mourning can also be a long and extended thing. I mean, I've had aunties and family members who, when they've lost a loved one, for example, a wife who's lost a husband, they wear complete black from top to bottom for a year or years just to mourn their, their departed loved one. And so in older generations as well, um, you have this mourning going on. And as I've said, some people were called in, for example, in, in, uh, in, in, in Italy more than, more than Australia, where you would have professional mourners. If you were good at wailing and weeping, you could make money from that. And you might say, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, why would you, why would you do that sort of thing? Because, and, and I'm not justifying, I'm not telling you all to go and get, get a job doing wailing in the morning. Um, because the, in essence, what they were saying is, the more you wailed, the more weeping that there was, that was evident at a funeral or evident when someone passed away, it showed the rest of the community how much that person was loved. And if no one cried, well, no one loves you then, right? So if you had money, it means that more people loved you. No, it doesn't. So here we find they've arrived at this particular place. They have a, a week of mourning, a whole week of mourning. Now, can you imagine mourning for a whole week? It would wear you out. That you would actually cry, that you would, that you would and it says that they, they raised a, a very sore lamentation, which means that it was so noticeable that the Canaanites looked and said, what's going on over here? Hang on a sec, aren't they all Egyptian chariots? They're Egyptian chariots. What are they doing in Canaan here, burying someone? And why are the Egyptians mourning so much in Canaan? And so they actually... It was so different for them, so awkward, so it didn't make sense to them that they actually named the place. They gave it a special name and they named it Abel Mizraim. Okay. And so when you look at, when you look at, the, when you look at that, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll just go back just for a moment. The mourning that you find was genuine there for, uh, for Joseph and his father. And the whole family was crying and lamenting. But do you know when Jesus, when, when Jesus died on that cross, that his, his disciples were mourning him as well? They were, because it says, actually turn to Mark chapter 16, verse 9. While they're, while they're presenting this argument to him, while they're pleading their cause and saying, you know, you should forgive us, and Dad said to come to you and you know and ask for forgiveness while they while they're doing all that there's an interesting phrase here it says and right at the end it says and joseph wept when they spoke unto him why is he crying for well, why is he crying while his brothers are coming to him seeking 
not to be the object of his wrath now. Maybe because in his heart he'd already forgiven them. Maybe because in his heart he had never had any intention of doing them any harm. Maybe because in his heart he thought, they still don't trust me. They still don't love me. And it says that he cried. And here we see that the bottom line is there's this loving and forgiving brother who didn't hold the trespasses of his brothers against him when he could have. And this shows once again a picture of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? His brothers had betrayed him. His brothers had, had sold him off into slavery. He probably would have died if it wasn't for God's intervention. But this is a picture of Christ. Look at Luke 23. <coughs> Luke chapter 23, verse 33. Luke 23, 33. So here, the Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God, has been nailed to a cross and has been raised up and he's been brought between two other criminals, two criminals. And it says that, verse 3 to 23, And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and one on the left, and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And I think that separates Jesus from every other figure in this in this world is that it didn't take him, you know, six months to to get over the the whole um, you know, they betrayed me. Why did they do it? I didn't deserve it. It didn't take him six months to get over that. And then he said, all right, I'll forgive them. No, Jesus actually in the midst of being crucified, in the midst of being betrayed by his own people and being rejected by his own people, in the midst of those soldiers having just nailed his hands into a cross, in the midst of being publicly humiliated and denigrated by being, by being crucified in the middle of two criminals because they wanted to portray him as a criminal in front of the whole world. And make an example of him. He says, Father, forgive them. And I'll guarantee you one thing. He's, he's asking his father to forgive them, then he's forgiven them. And so, once again, Joseph becomes a wonderful example of how forgiving our Saviour is. When we do something wrong, when we fail him, our natural instinct, our old nature, is to run and hide. And to imagine that he hasn't forgiven us or that he can't forgive us. But I'll tell you something, he's already forgiven you. And he's not the type, he's not the kind who will hold retribution against you to get even with you. That is not his nature. If you belong to him and you fail him, he will not disown you or cast you away or cast you aside. Because he loves you more than you can understand. And when Joseph cries, when he hears his brother saying, you know, please don't kill us. That's the same heart that Jesus has for us. 
Let's continue. Genesis 50, verse 18, now says, And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for I, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore, fear ye not, don't fear, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly to them. So his brothers thought, if it's not enough, that dad, that dad's uh, recommendation is that you forgive us. If it's not enough that we're appealing to God, I'll tell you what, we'll become your servants for the rest of our lives. We'll make ourselves your slaves. Please don't kill us and our families. And Joseph was never about to take any vengeance on them. And he said, well, I'm not God here. In fact, he, then he clearly tells them because he understands what happened. He'd understand the picture here that God had given and how God was in the working in the midst of all the stuff throughout his entire life. He said, you may have meant it evil for me when you sold me off, when you threw me in that pit and you were considering selling me off to, to the slave traders. But God knew what he was doing. God knew and God was allowing it for good. Because look where we are now. Look at where we are at this point. We've been able to save all of our family. We've saved so many people because God has worked through this particular situation. And this is the story of us again in this crucifixion. While men were crucifying the king of glory, while men hated him and thought to destroy him and, and put him away because he was, he was a threat to them and their authority and their little system that they had set up. While the world rejected him, the Bible says that God meant it for good. God meant that it would come to pass in order that we would be saved, that we and our children would be nourished, and that we would be given comfort. What a picture of a believer, saved by the blood of Christ on a cross, nourished by the word of God that we hold in our hands today, comforted by the comforter who came from heaven, who now lives within our hearts. Because of that evil thing that was done, God meant it for good for the entire world so that many would be saved. What do what people commonly think about Jesus, I wonder, in this world? I often forget when I think about when I was 18 or 17, just before I got saved, what did I actually think of him? That I didn't come to him in the first place? Did I think he was cruel? Did I think he was asking too much? Did I think that maybe I didn't need him? Or that maybe he was unreasonable in some way? Maybe I did. I forget. I forget what I was thinking in those days. Maybe it's a good thing that I was forgetting. But I wonder what most people commonly think about when you mention the name of Jesus today. What do they think of him? Like Joseph's brothers, did they maybe not trust him? Maybe he's he doesn't want he's not in it for our good. Maybe he's 
Maybe he really, deep down, he wants to destroy us. Maybe he doesn't really love me. Maybe they're, they're fearful. Maybe they're so fearful of, of him and, and accepting him is because if, if they accept him as a saviour, it would mean that they have to acknowledge their own sin. Maybe it's too hard of a pill to swallow to say that it's my fault. I have to own up to this. It was because of me that he actually went there. Maybe that's too hard for them to take. Maybe, they have, maybe it's too hard to admit that if you have to plead for a saviour to save you, when you, if you have to go to a saviour, then you can't save yourself. Maybe that's too hard to swallow for most people. Because if I can't save myself, what does it say about me? So people deny the most obvious thing. That in their lives, that they know they've done wrong, that deep down there is something wrong with them, and so they keep pushing that down and to the side so they don't have to admit their failure, they don't have to admit their guilt, and they don't have to admit that they can't save themselves. So they don't trust. They can't trust their eternal soul, their life, into the hands of someone they don't trust. Most people in the world will not contemplate having Jesus have authority and power over them. Because that means now I have to change my own life. That I have to follow his commands. They cannot admit their own sin, and so they don't come to him. Yet Jesus, like Joseph, offers full forgiveness. And the death that he dies offers that fully, but also points to their guilt at the same time, doesn't it? So looking at the cross is like looking at an admission of my guilt. Without the first step of admitting our own sin and the helplessness that comes from being in that position, a person cannot come to Christ and receive salvation because they still believe that they're saving themselves. That's why religion is so deadly. Religion is a deadly, deadly thing. Every religion in the world spouts the same garbage that says that you just try hard enough, you follow enough commands, you do enough good things, you build enough, enough good karma, that in the end, you know, when you're being weighed in the balance, all you need to do is be a little bit more on the right-hand side. As long as, the, as long as the bad stuff is lighter than your good stuff, you're in. And here we have God who has sacrificed his son. That throws all that down the drain. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You see, unless you fear first, unless you understand your guilt first, you cannot come to Christ. So we've reached the, the end of the book of Genesis, and the end of Joseph's life and his story. And in verse 22 it says, And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, 
were brought up upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. And God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he swear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, just like his dad did for him, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry me up, you shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. After 110 years, Joseph rested. But before he did, he made his brothers, he made his family promise that when God comes and takes us out of this place, make sure you take my bones with you. You don't leave me here. And you bury me back where my father is buried. You bring me back to that promised land because he had every faith that God would visit them. And that would happen some 400 years later. Can you imagine how long that is? 400 years. That's a long time. So 400 years later, <coughs> we read at the beginning of the very next book. Go to Exodus chapter 1, verse 6 with me. Very next book. Exodus chapter 1, verse 6 says, And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And hence we have the beginning of their bondage. We have the beginning of, of where they become a threat. To the Egyptians and things go from bad to worse but just like his father Jacob Joseph was embalmed it doesn't say he was buried it said he was put in a coffin in Egypt so they put him in storage okay and like his father Joseph made his brothers promise to bring them bring him back when God visited Egypt and we know the ending of the story which is fantastic for us because we've read this Probably many times, God did save Israel from bondage in an amazing way, with plenty of miracles along the way. After Joseph died here, and they came out of Egypt with with abundance, but they failed to enter the Promised Land the first time, didn't they? They didn't have the faith to step into that place. So for forty years they walked around a wilderness, the whole lot of them. And when they finally came back to that same place, Joshua was still alive and he leads them into that promised land. And for the next 30 years, they're fighting the people of Canaan, okay? The Amorites and the Amalekites and the, the Hittites and the Perizzites and the, the Bible, all the different bites that are out there. For 30 years, they, they fight. And the interesting thing is this. Joshua lived to... 110 years old and Joshua at his death just before he died they divide up all the land of Israel with all the tribes of Israel and God fulfilled his promise to bring them back to that land but did Israel fulfill its promise well we read in Joshua 24. Turn me to Joshua chapter 24, the end of the book of Joshua. Okay? So we're talking 
some 70 years after they left Israel. The end of the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 32. And it says, look at this, the end of the book of Joshua, after they've divvied up all the land and they've settled down, it says, and the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. Do you know what that means? It means when they left Egypt, they took his coffin. You know what that also means? That for 70 years, they were carrying that coffin around. For 70 years. Egypt carried that coffin around that wilderness for 40 years. And until they conquered that land for the next 30 years or so, they still had that coffin with them. It was with them every day. They wandered for 70 years, a whole lifetime, with that coffin. And this is my final point for this whole series. What does carrying a coffin around got to do with anything? What's the point of carrying a coffin around for 70 years? Well, I'll tell you something. If Joseph is a picture of Christ, then it's a picture of us who carry around the death of our Saviour. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. The cross is an instrument of death. And Jesus tells us to take that instrument of death and bring it around with us everywhere we go. Because we are proclaiming his death everywhere we go. Just like those, those Israelites that were carrying a coffin around. A coffin is a symbol of death. And you and I have been called to carry our cross. And it's not just a cross that the other um, malefactors died on. This cross was a cross of our Saviour. And we've been called to remind ourselves and to show the world that an amazing exchange took place in our lives. Because our sin, all our sin, all our stain, all our, um, our rebellion and everything that was bad about us, the Bible says, was nailed to that cross. And in exchange for having taken all this bad stuff away from me, God says, I'm going to do an exchange program with you, huh? If you give me all of that, I'll give you all of forgiveness and all of my son's righteousness in exchange. That's what happened to Calvary. And that's why we remind ourselves of his death all the time. Because it meant the death of us. It means that we died on that cross with him. Two more passages before we close. Romans 6.3. There are two things that we do when we are saved. And the first thing 
Well, the first act of obedience that we often refer to is this, this thing called baptism, right? We call the Baptist Church because we believe that you should be baptised, right? Do you know what baptism is a picture of? It's not a picture of taking away, washing away your sin. Baptism is a picture of death, burial and resurrection. So it says, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, 3, No, you're not. That so many of us as were baptised into Jesus, Jesus Christ were baptised into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, like that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so when we're first saved, the first thing we do is in front of everyone, we're called to bury ourselves and come back up again. So we're saying we've died and we're following Christ. And then every, every time we celebrate this thing called the Lord's Table, what are we doing? Reminding ourselves about the death again. So that's why in 1 Corinthians 11.24 it says, When he gave thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is a new testament in my blood. This do ye as, uh, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. Till we come. So just like those Israelites were carrying a coffin around every day and carrying all around with them, which was an open display of Joseph's life and how they had got to that particular point, we've been called, our whole lives are meant to be this picture of Christ's death. That he has died for us and we are now different and changed and new people because of what he has done for us on that cross. As the Apostle Paul so eloquently puts, his goal, his aim, his purpose in life can be encapsulated in one sentence. And I love this. One of my favourite verses, Philippians 3.10 says, what does Paul want to know? He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul wanted to die completely so that he might experience the full resurrection of Christ in his own life. And that is my plea to you today. Live like that. Joseph is a wonderful example of how to live. But in Joseph's life, we see this wonderful picture of our Saviour. The Israelites may have carried him around for 70 years. How long are you carrying Christ? Will you carry your cross around? Will the world see that cross in your life? Will they understand that you've crucified the old nature, the old you, and that you now live for Christ? Because there is something not there is something much more than just a death here, there is resurrection as well. Because the new life we live was gained and was received because of his death. And because he is alive. What's your goal today? Is Jesus Christ your saviour? If you know that he is your saviour, if you've received eternal life as a gift, then please live like it now. Walk behind him. Take up your cross. Crucify the old nature. Put sin behind you and live fully for him. And if you don't know Christ this morning, if you don't know you're saved, now is the time to follow him. Don't waste another day. There is no other saviour. There is no other name given among men. Under heaven by which we must be saved. So choose him today.
because he has chosen to save you. God bless you. Thank you.